Welcome back to the theory behind it. Just wanted to remind you guys that we have some new social media accounts, new ways to get in touch with us. We'd love for you to join our subreddit, r slash the theory behind it. Another great place would be to join our Discord server where we've actually been having a little bit of discussion there, which is great. That's what we want. Find the link to the Discord on the subreddit or on Facebook, and I think we might also have tweeted it out at some point, or we will in the future. Uh, so come check us out, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hey guys, thanks for stopping by the podcast today. Today, we're going to get into the thesis that wasn't. We're talking about what we were sort of thinking as we got into master's programs and maybe why we went in the eventual direction of our thesis and some other side ideas that we're interested in and want to talk about but haven't necessarily given a presentation on or presented at a conference yet. But before we get to that, please make sure you're subscribed, you've liked everything, and if you haven't, leaving us like a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you find the podcast would be great. And, and thanks just for to get out ahead, just to get ahead of everything, TM, 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 everything we say in this episode is trademarked. You can't take these ideas, um, so just <laughs> you know, stay in your own lane. <laughs> But anyways, thank you guys so much for supporting the show, and on to the program. Adam, Livy, just anything general in life before we get into the theses that almost were? One of my piano students works at the convenience store next to where I live, so I see him a lot now. That's fun. <laughs> I'm still waiting on my next Harry Potter book, and that's really the only thing that I have to talk about these days, so... Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so who wants to kick us off with um, what they almost did for their thesis? Okay, so my thesis, as I've mentioned a few times, has en ended up being um, sort of Shanker-esque, but it was just like a linear approach to John Adams's later music. That was one of the few, like, um, analytical topics that I had because most of my interests throughout my master's were actually pedagogy related and so that was actually the avenue that my um, brain went down initially for a thesis was a pedagogy paper and the only real idea that I was kind of felt like could work but I didn't end up doing and haven't really actually researched was um a look at the connection between ear training and learning languages. Now granted, someone could have done this already. Someone could have already figured out that this isn't a thing. This was just an idea I had and never really researched. So I'll preface that. But um, I just thought it was kind of, I don't know. To me, there's a similarity in learning a language and that it's, and that I think of like ear training as learning a language. There's this whole system of auditory cues basically that you learn to recognize similar to learning a foreign language. Granted, very different, different parts of the brain, I'm sure, but there's a similarity there. And so what I thought... And in general, we talk about, we talk a lot, like in our pedagogy <laughs> class and amongst each other about like how music theory as a whole is kind of a language. For sure. Not not necessarily in like the brain connection way that you mean it, but, the, the, but it that's is. already kind of how we frame it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
And um, and I thought that something that might be interesting because there's been um, a good amount of research and there's still research being put out that connects written theory, like analysis and stuff you teach in undergrad with math skills. And I thought it could be interesting to look at learning ear training to foreign language. And then specifically, if I found enough to support this, I thought it would be interesting to focus more on the curriculum aspect. So I, and one of the particular details that I thought was interesting that I was going to lean into if I ended up researching this to find out if it was feasible was there's at least two different approaches to foreign language pedagogy. I know there's more, but two that interested me was this idea of immersion where let's say you're learning Spanish, you walk in a class and your teacher is only going to speak Spanish to you. They might dumb it down to what you can understand, but they're only going to speak Spanish Mm -hmm. and you're just immersed and you pick it up that way. Kind of like you do as a child. Um, You learn through immersion versus a very like segmented approach and very structured where you're learning simple vocabulary, simple, simple grammar. And then you pick up on like, uh, like more casual slang and stuff like that as you go along. So simple to complex. And where I was struggling was to find exact correlations to the way we teach ear training, but I do think that there's some, you could find some relationship there of the way you could teach ear training, which is kind of what I did, which is teaching students a series of details to listen for, like a series of puzzle pieces that they could put together in a dictation, for example. Like if you hear this and you hear this, well then you've given yourself a map and you just have to fill in the blanks. Whereas I'm sure even one of you guys could have taught it in a more immersive way where it's more of like, okay, here's this thing as a whole. Let's start with the whole and then break it down. Does that make sense? And so I thought that there could be an interesting, if I could find a substantial relationship there of then approaching it from like a curriculum standpoint, because I think that there's more established pedagogy pedagogy research in the foreign language field regarding curriculum than there is in ear training. So I was like, maybe we could apply what they've already figured out into ear training. And that's generally just the idea that I thought I might go down just to see if it was feasible, but I never ended up doing it. Yeah, I at least to me, um, because I was thinking... Like when I was talking to um, Dr. Rust early on, as I was interested in going to the school, he was asking me about what ideas I might have to try to figure out like seminar topics and other things. And that way it could helpfully all tie together. And so I had brought up um, doing a similar pedagogy route, but more related to my band experience. And so I think one of the things that um, you might have to think about is like picking a specific curriculum that you were going to look at mm-hmm. and like compare it to what you would, what you might say is like, this would be the better model that we're trying to expand upon. Mm-hmm. And then like pick a curriculum and say, here's how it fits to that or what you might need to add in supplementally to get to all of the things that you need to. Yeah. Definitely. I think that the place that kind of lost me when I had this idea and why I didn't end up pursuing it is one, because doing a full thesis on a pedagogy topic requires a lot of data. And if it was going to be like an original idea, I would have to get all of my own data. And I just didn't feel like I was equipped for that. And then um, just, I don't know, I feel like there, I didn't have, without getting really in depth into the research, I needed to learn a lot more about foreign language pedagogy to find out exactly the reasons they teach things the way they do, like immersion versus kind of a little bit more structured, simple to complex, so that then I could relate it exactly to music theory because I felt like it was like a personal connection I was making and not so much something that's been like actually substantiated in any any scientific way. But if I got to that point, then yeah, I was going to go kind of the route that you just described with the curriculum. That was my goal if I ended up doing it. Well, and 
I think, and I don't remember if it was the recommends one or if it was the one before that. I think it was the one before that where we got into Adam's student who has this like other um, idea of language. Mm -hmm. But basically, I think it's the, or the language of music, but it's still you are learning the language of music, which is how do we express all of these different elements of music, whether it's rhythm, pitch, dynamics, you have to kind of understand all of those things and be able to categorize it. And so, yeah, I think that pedagogy topics are really cool and would be a really fun thing to do um, a big project like a thesis on, but then it, I don't know, like you were getting at with the research, it just seems so daunting Mm-hmm. that it's like it would have to be a dissertation and just because know about of the it amount so far in advance to plan out right the because you I, need a lot of like trial for certain topics yeah. some things are just theoretical but like i feel like this if i wanted to do a curriculum thing that would re- require some application and i would have to plan it so far out and that was definitely not happening when i was writing my thesis like for sure yeah and you'd have to like convince a theory professor to like let you do anything <laughs> which yeah, it's questionable. I, mean, I, think, I, think our, I think our professor, I think Dr. Beard would have been flexible with you, but trying to do that, do that project as a dissertation, like already having a master's degree and some teaching under your belt, rather than doing it for your mm-hmm. master's, I think you'd get a lot more slack. Like you'd, you'd get a lot more leash Probably. to kind of experiment and, and collect that data in the classroom. Probably, yeah. Although I wonder, at least as a starting point, because you have um, national standards and other things, I wonder if somebody was interested, whether it's you or a listener of the podcast or a friend of a listener of the podcast, Mm -hmm. that if you went and took like the ELA standards and kind of followed the progression of like kindergarten through 12th grade and kind of because it would give you a map of like, okay, as they're progressing, what should they be know, like able to mm-hmm. recognize and do with the language that you could then compare that to, like you could take that and try to map it onto an ear training curriculum or um, a music theory curriculum. Yeah, that's true. Um, um, I wanted to add that a friend of the podcast, Shelly Patterson, Mm-hmm. I, I don't actually know if she even knows the podcast exists, so that may not <laughs> be super accurate, but friend to us, graduate student at USM, she's doing her thesis on improvisation as language, um, and she did yeah. a presentation at South Central Society for Music Theory that I, that I got to see, like a, she did the, what is it, the pan, like the poster board presentation, what is that called, like just a post, she did a poster, mm-hmm. yeah, that's what it is. And she found some, like, learning a second language, like, rubric that cognitive linguists use. Yeah. And she figured out how to adapt it into musical, like, find musical equivalents for each step of that kind of rubric. And presented on, you know, with with some more data and things like that on on making that transfer. So not specifically pedagogy. Hers was more focused on improvisation. Mm -hmm. Um, But that sort of, like, music as language you know, that even, even close by, somebody's doing that near us, you know? Yeah. She was telling me about that when, uh, she got accepted in SES 70. I hadn't heard about it. And she was telling me 
And I got so excited because I was like, oh my gosh, that's like halfway yeah. what I was interested in. And so I'm really uh-huh. excited for when her thesis actually comes out. I'm very yes. interested in like the connection that she makes with those standards because that's, you know, exactly the kind of research that I was going to look into and just never did. And so maybe that could give me a springboard mm-hmm. to go in a different direction with it. Who knows? But um, And she has a really strong science background. Like her previous degrees are all in science. Oh, yeah. It's like that sort of data and experimentation I think comes more naturally to her than maybe either of us. Oh yeah, her explaining the like even the music portion of it, I was like, "Yep, you're you're very clever." Like it just all went over <laughs> my head. I was like, "Dang, Shelly, I just couldn't follow half of it." But it was it was clued in enough to realize that it was very in the same direction. It's not the same because, like you said, it doesn't go pedagogy, it doesn't go ear training, it goes different music. But just the fact that she's relating language acquisition to music i was like oh my gosh <laughs> mm-hmm. yep. that's what yep, i like exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah i can't wait for her thesis to come out i'm very excited to read it mm-hmm. wait so you're out there reading theses i mean i'm gonna did read you hers. read mine no i feel like i already know both of your theses by heart <laughs> <laughs> I, i'll read them if, if you want me to did either of you guys read mine i feel like you didn't <laughs> Um, I heard you present that. that <laughs> it's not the I, same. <laughs> I, I held yours in my hand at one point in time. Oh my gosh. I'm so flattered. <laughs> it was. I still haven't gotten mine printed. I think it was as I went back to USM mm-hmm. for my defense that it was on the shelf in the music office. And so I was like, oh, cool. And I kind of like flipped through it. But I didn't even know that was there. <laughs> I yeah, it was, they still it was did that. They have like a big shelf of, is it just new theses or dissertations? I think it's all the music ones. In the music office? I'm pretty sure it was there like right when you walk in. I mean, I like know they the have dissertations right. in there. I didn't know they were going to add our master's theses to that collection. That's pretty cool. Huh. I have no idea where that is. Okay. Although I'm also, Livy, did you have to go get yours printed for that? Although, yes, I but guess... I was required to go get mine printed in general. Right, so that, and neither was I. Exactly. Yeah, I was forced to go get mine printed at the printing whatever in 100% cotton paper. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the most flammable paper. <laughs> oh. uh, yeah, no, I don't actually have any hard copies of my thesis still because I was not demanded to print it. In fact, like oh, I yeah. didn't even have to get all their signatures on the cover page and stuff. I didn't keep mine. I did the one print. I was like, I'm not gonna pay for myself to keep it. I have a computer. Oh, I was. I'm gonna. I'm gonna get a copy of it at some point. Yeah. Uh, 100% <laughs> cotton. I just. It was. It's so expensive to print it. Like they gave you like the two websites you can just submit the PDF to and print it. Mm-hmm. And they were still like forty bucks a piece. It's like what? Yeah, I think I had to pay. It was at least twenty. But even then, I was like, why am I printing this for someone else? <laughs> Mm-hmm. And as far as I could tell, the print shop, either because of the pandemic or just in general, the print shop at USM what wouldn't print it. Um, Weird. Yeah. So like it had to go through one of these two websites. Or I guess I could find anywhere else that would print it. But no, I'm going to get one eventually. I mean, it'd be a nice thing to have. But yeah. I guess I also understand I see it on the Libby's, shelf, you know? Livy's point of like, eh, <laughs> it's online. I have a computer. I'm going <laughs> to put it right next to my copy of Strauss's Stravinsky book. I just feel like I'm on the same <laughs> level as him. <laughs> Like, we both wrote about Stravinsky. We're like the same. Me and you, Joe Strauss. I do, I do wonder. I think it's up to like 25 people that have at least looked at my thesis online. Uh, yeah, no. after you messaged or asked us about that, I think I did get an email about it. 
Yeah, I I'm do get like, those. I don't think I get them every month. I just get them every time. Maybe not I'm every time like, someone looks at it, but I get a periodic update. Who are these people? But That's such a good question. What is that again? It's uh, Aquila. Yeah. Yeah. I have a theory that Dr. Rust is just downloading mine over and over again. I can't think of any other reason. <laughs> I, seven down- I got an email on the third that says I have seven downloads total. Look at you go. I mean, every time I get I an update. Five downloads in August, which I think is when it started existing. So that doesn't really count. See, and every time I get an update, it says like it's in the double digits of like new downloads. And I'm like, no one cares. I think it's just Dr. Rust. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's just he's accidentally it. downloading it or something. There's not 10 plus people. It, who offered to read it, and they, they still haven't replied to me yet. But So, getting back on topic a little bit. Um, <laughs> Adam, topic? What? since yours goes in a different direction, you want me to go next since it was still uh, pedagogy related? Oh, oh, yeah, sure. That's cool. Um, Good transition. So the, Good podcasting. My- <laughs> So that my idea when I was talking to Dr. Rust early on was relating ear training skills to band curriculum and specifically low brass is where I was finding a lot of my ear training background to be helpful because as I was teaching it in my first year, I was having my students do things like sing as well as um, understanding some basic theory and some other things. And so I wanted to incorporate that because as a band director, I knew that having these theory skills and a better understanding of what Livy's getting at, the language of music, that that would only help them as players, especially having a strong ear. Because, oh, and especially as of late, I've gotten annoyed with the idea of like, well, I'm tone deaf, or I'm just not <laughs> musically talented, or like people saying all of these things. And it's like, that's not true. You just haven't had somebody who understands it and is able to convey this language to you the way that, like, I could. Although I did have somebody ask me the other day, you know, I want you to, what's the easiest instrument to play? And I was like, the drum. They didn't (laughs) quite get that. I just meant it's literally, like, if you hit it, it makes a noise. So it is the easiest to play. That was my joke to myself. (laughs) (laughs) Um... But okay. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you gave me a half-hearted laugh and I was willing to accept it. And then there was like the subtle okay. And I was like, oh, okay. Adam didn't think it was funny. <laughs> but yeah, so there was just, we were doing a lot of singing in class, especially like singing of note names and other things or singing of like slide positions or fingerings and helping them like hear it mentally or get used to audiating as they're playing there, whether it was the tuba, the trombone, or the baritone. And that was something that, especially in my beginner sixth grade class, like they seemed, in my opinion, beyond where everybody else was. And that I think had a lot to do with the fact that the other groups weren't doing that. And so, and they just had a better understanding of here's the fingering or the slide position for this note. Here's where the note is. They were better at sight reading because they were used to doing things in rhythm and like in a tempo already. And so I was interested in, okay, how do I write about all of these things in a thesis but i think i got to the same point that livy did where 
the idea of doing research for that and then trying to prove it just seemed very daunting. You know, and this is coming from the person who still spent, like, two and a half years writing his thesis. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> I don't know. It, Relatable. Like, yeah, it would it would be a fun project to do, and I would still love to present a paper on it or something, but there's also other things that I'm doing currently that are similar to that, where me and the students are working on solfege, and not just singing it, but then I'll give them, like, six numbers, like, one through six, and I'll write solfege in different small blocks and so that getting them used to recognizing okay did i play do re mi did i play mi re do did i play do re mi fa so did i like in just little blocks like that but even this is with fourth grade where i'm trying to develop their ear and get them into the basic knowledge of the system so that when they do get to play on instruments, they already have that skill built up a little bit. And they'll, even if they aren't as naturally talented on an instrument because of whatever feature of their face or their arms, that that would be, like, they'll be at an advantage because of their ear, basically. Yeah. You should write a band curriculum. Yeah, and I, like, at one point I wanted to write a low brass curriculum, Mm-hmm. But, again, that just seems like so much work. <laughs> <laughs> I had an assistant uh, an assistant band director in undergrad who actually got his doctorate at USM. And he um, went there for band conducting, but he was really big into theory. Kind of like Mark Johnson that we know, that we went there with. And it's kind of funny, Mark Johnson actually knows my assistant director. Anyway, so he was there for band conducting, and but he was really big into theory. And after he went there, he ended up teaching in North Carolina public schools, teaching middle school for a long time. Teaching middle school and then high school for a long time. Um, and he ended up writing a little theory workbook for a middle school band. So he's kind of a big proponent of the same thing you are, but not specifically for brass, like you kind of are particularly interested in. But I always thought it was really cool because he would teach us about it in our, um, he taught the 612 methods class in undergrad, and he would focus on how important theory is to band kids. Gotcha. No, that's really cool. I'm interested in redoing a band curriculum at some point. The problem I think I have, though, is it would have to be, like, so radically different that some people would freak out briefly. (laughs) Because I want to do things like teach them a chromatic scale first. Mm -hmm. And I I feel like some people would be like, what? No. Why would you do that? It's pretty crazy compared to how how most bands do it now. Okay, so speaking more to you and less to Adam for the moment, but (laughs) with... But so that Libby with my fourth, fifth, and sixth graders, when I because we can't play on things yet, but I have a bunch of recorders in the room, Mm -hmm. and so we're just not playing on them, but we're working on like the fingering of things. And Mm -hmm. so I told them um, on Friday that there's a magic code, and that the Mm -hmm. code is open second one one and two, Mm -hmm. and so. The reason that I told them that is because if you were playing trumpet, your first notes would be mm-hmm. concert B flat, A, A flat, G. Mm-hmm. If you're playing baritone, it's concert B flat, A, A flat, G. If you're playing clarinet, that your 
left hand has to be down on the top end, but the bottom hand mm -hmm. is still open for C, second for B, one, or sorry, yeah, one for B flat, and then one and two for A. And then on sax, it would be G, F sharp, F, E, which are still all concert B flat, A, mm -hmm. A flat, G. And so that at least that way, I've taught everybody the same fingering for the same concert notes. Now, don't get me wrong. Flutes are ignored in this light. I get eh. it. <laughs> Although I would argue that going B flat, the one and one B flat to A, you still did put your second finger down next, mm -hmm. even though... It's one and two, like. Or you could just have them play in thirds and have them start on G, but nah. Yeah. Either way, they still can apply it. Right, and so that basically the idea being that okay, we could all start the same, and then for brass, now I don't have to fight a partial because the problem I took with low brass was if I tell somebody to start on D, which is a common starting note for a lot of books, or. Mm -hmm b flat that that partial to go up to c the very next note you have to go up to f essentially on the partials mm -hmm. and so that that's very hard for a brass player to do whereas a like flute you just lift a finger and you're on the next note or sax mm -hmm. if i'm mm -hmm. on g to get to a i just lift a finger like i didn't have to change my armature or anything else but for brass you do and so that if I teach you chromatically, like, okay, first step is we hit the first two partials so that you're playing concert B-flat and concert F, and mm -hmm. I did that for a week with them, and then I said, okay, now we can try to, like, move our slide or our fingers, but they have a better understanding of, okay, here's how I get to this partial, or here's how I get to this one, and it's not a big deal if I'm not necessarily hitting the right partial yet, because, like, I'll get there eventually, and now I'm moving my slide, mm -hmm. and so I have a better understanding of, here's the middle register, here's the low one, which one do I want to be in? Yeah, and, and so generally speaking... I think it makes a lot of sense that you would focus on audiating from a brass perspective, because like you said, that is not a thing that woodwinds have to do beyond playing in tune. It's just button pushing until you get into like extended techniques. Other than yeah. that, it's purely this button will give you this sound. Whereas, so then to go into a brass instrument, it's so crazy how much you have to audiate and know where you want the pitch to be even roughly. It's like right. an entirely different mechanism than playing a woodwinds. And ear training then, it that's basically what it is it's ear training it's just a different type of ear training right but then i think across the board with any instrument that singing and getting used to saying the note names is important because like you've said before on the podcast that there's not a whole lot of error recognition in mm -hmm. teaching that skill and so that the more we get them used to like before we play we're singing and we're expecting it to sound a certain way and that if it doesn't, our ear is telling us that something went wrong somewhere. Mm -hmm. For sure. And so that, especially for woodwind players who might get in the habit of just lifting fingers and like, yeah, I went to the next note, that if we can also train their ear to be better at that error detecting, mm -hmm. that that would help them. Yeah, definitely. Basically, all of that is to say that I was really interested in how do we incorporate those ear training or oral skills into like 
elementary band or middle school band curriculum. Definitely. So I feel like we've talked about that for a second. Adam, as a... I also I play piano, so I also <laughs> just press a lot of buttons. I don't really, I don't yeah. really do all that other stuff. I just press buttons. Although, it, okay, so side moment before we get into Adam's um, almost thesis. I have um, this little saxophone kid, Livy, and mm-hmm. he is just the funniest kid to teach mm-hmm. because he, like, for the life of me, I cannot get him into a method book to do, like, anything. It's the bane of his existence. <laughs> and he's, I think he's 10 now. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, hey, can we go, like, do this number out of the book? Are you sure you don't want to play a card game? And I was like, I So guess, he just doesn't I want to play we... at all? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not that. So that um, this past weekend, we were playing the card game because he, he also has this problem of staying up until 3 o'clock in the morning playing on mm-hmm. his tablet. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so some at 11 o'clock, he's only been asleep for a couple hours before his grandparents got him up to come to lessons. Uh-huh. And so there's like a, uh, an education they talk about. Sometimes you get set up mm-hmm. of like, you don't know what somebody had going on at home before they got to school. So right. you may not want to start off like riding them first thing in the morning because mm-hmm. they may have other stuff going. So with him, it feels like there's always a setup of, okay, <laughs> I've been up till three or four in the morning. I got up like two hours later. Maybe I didn't eat breakfast this morning. So I'm all over the place. But we were sitting there playing this little like matching card game, working on, you know, which note is higher, which note is lower, those kinds of things. And I like sneakily was like, yeah, I'm just going to play some music. And I was putting on some like alto sax, like hotel music. Um, <laughs> so... Then, like, after about five minutes and we had finished our first round of this little card game, he was like, you know, I think I do want to go play some sax. Of course, (laughs) like, I'm trying to get him to get the basics of the sax and just reading music in, like, Standard of Excellence Red Book. Yeah. Like, I'm not advocating for it as the best method ever. It's just he needs some easy things to get used to reading music. Yeah. Also, he didn't have his glasses this day, so he was like, <laughs> I basically can't read music anyways. <laughs> so I was like, all right, whatever. He's like, yeah, I want to go play some alto sax. And I was like, okay. So I, and this is where it gets into fun for Adam. I went and grabbed my jazz book. I was hoping that I had the E-flat fake book so that I could just read those chords. I didn't. So <laughs> then I, I was like, you know what? Normally I just play on pop progressions. What if I play him a jazz standard today and just don't tell him what I'm doing? I looked at Autumn Leaves, and of course it's an E minor. I was like, hmm, okay, getting him to play an F sharp minor seems like a very tall task for me. (laughs) Okay, what can I do? I was like, well, if I put it in F, then he would be in D, and then I can just give him the five notes of like D, E, F, G, A which is like yeah. easy on his fingers because he's just lifting them straight up. There's no like, yeah. there's not even the F sharp of I have to remember second finger instead of first. Mm-hmm. So basically I transposed everything up, the core changes up a half step on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which was, it was okay after I like played through it a time or two, but trying yeah. to take everything like up half a step and like, okay. What is a G sharp minor minor seven? What <laughs> was uh, kind of 
It wasn't bad. Like, I eventually got it. It sounds bad. <laughs> yeah. I would panic. <laughs> but basically, I was playing with him, and then he was like, oh, yeah, this is awesome. I'm like, I like, I'm into this song. And then he was even like, yeah, I'm going to go get my grandpa, and like, we'll record it Like at the end of the lesson. Aww. I was like, well, good for you. <laughs> That's awesome. But it's just, it's so funny, because there was even... Um, I was playing something on the piano before that, and he was just like, "Yeah, I think I want to sing." It's like, "What? <laughs> what do you? What do you want to sing?" And I was just like, "Just whatever." And oh. so, like, I'm just playing, you know, little pop progressions and things, and he's over there just singing things. And the only reason we stopped was he ran out of words to say. Not that oh, he ran out so of like funny. melodies to create, but it was just I ran out of words to so that. <laughs> It was one of those, his, for whatever reason, his like auditory skills are far beyond his technical skills on the instrument. And I think that's... That's so funny. It's just, it is such a wild thing. I had the thought yesterday of like, you know, you don't know it, but you should be really thankful for me because I don't know who else would teach you like this because other (laughs) people would try to force you into that book more. (laughs) Well, it's clear that whenever he decides that he wants it enough to do it, he'll be really good. Oh, and what's even crazier, when he improvs and is just making things up, which is clearly what he's hearing, he's playing 16th notes, he's playing syncopated rhythms, he's like doing all these other weird things. And it's like, I can't get you to sight read quarter notes and half notes out of a book. What it... (laughs) What is the hang up here? But clearly there's a, for whatever reason, like reading the music is his like fear. Yeah, I don't know so if that's glass, glasses related or whatever. Oh, other weird thing. And then we'll actually get to Adam's thing. On Autumn Leaves, I would occasionally like hum the part because mm-hmm. I would need to make sure that I was like staying on my tempo. Yeah. He started playing what I was humming. Oh, but he, he sounds very impressive. Right? But also very silly. It, But, like, he doesn't know the song. He doesn't know, mm-hmm. you know, there's all these other things that he doesn't know. I just told him, hey, you're working with the notes D, E, F, A, and G. He was like, all right. And then he just, like, kind of went and was like, all right, I don't know what to do with you. <laughs> so funny. All right, Adam. <laughs> How many songs have you transposed up half a step uh, on keyboard recently? I was going to say, recently? I have a- <laughs> <laughs> uh i i was gonna say i have a kid that I, i've been teaching and uh similarly like kind of funny kid this one i don't think he's like a he's not a brilliant like auditory aural skills kid he's just really 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 smart and so he memorizes stuff really quickly and i found out that he doesn't really know how to read music because he'll just guess uh, until he plays it sneaky. right and then i'll be like that's right and then he has it memorized and he'll just play it from memory that's mm-hmm. totally a thing in band too. Yeah, and so Very it's sneaky. like, what? no, look at the why? Where are you looking? Why? Why aren't you looking at the page? He's like, I don't know. Like, is this G? Did it go like this? I'm like, it tells you what to play. <laughs> Just look at what it says. It'll tell you. Uh, so yeah, we've been trying to trying to work on that. I, I got him a harder sight reading book, and we're I'm trying to, you know, get him well in music. Look. But a funny kid, funny kid. I enjoyed lessons with him. He's, he's Yeah, but that is one of along. the tough things about teaching is one strategy is sound before sight. So getting them to go ahead and do something. Mm-hmm. But then the problem is, okay, what if they just memorized it by rote? 
and now aren't like actually taking that next step. Isn't Sound Before Sight what Suzuki does? Suzuki, I remember being very rote based. Yeah, that's what I thought. It's a lot of because that isn't that how little kids learn strings often. The Suzuki yeah. method. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. They make like motorcycles and also <laughs> teach. I mean, it's all based <laughs> on rote. You just you're actually learning the skills that can then be applied to riding motorcycles. <laughs> it's all one connected yeah. thing. Um. No, I forget the name of whoever said those things because i'm a bad educator um (laughs) but i remember the concept that counts right (laughs) see now that i'm now that i'm like teaching piano and stuff especially like mostly kids it's like oh man i kind of wish i had like some music ed classes because i don't know what the heck i'm doing yeah there's plenty of people that took music ed classes that have no idea what they're doing so yeah that's fair yeah (laughs) All right, so I don't even really have like a degree in piano. So I mean, I guess my undergrad concentration is piano, but it wasn't a piano degree, and so. Hey, but on a different note, should we be concerned that every degree you've tried to finish has ended with like some sort of natural disaster or pandemic? Uh, yeah, I have thought about That's that. True. I've. Uh, I guess I did have the other graduation. Uh, what Seth is referring to is that when I graduated, my last semester at William Carey University here in Hattiesburg, uh, the school was destroyed by a tornado. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I was homeless for a little bit, then they moved me, they let me move back into the apartment, but nobody could meet on campus for classes because all the buildings were destroyed. And we did have, we did end up having graduation, but we had to do it in a different building, which was fine because that building was nicer than our auditorium. Uh, and then, yeah, my last semester at USM, uh, there was a global pandemic. So, that yeah, I guess I shouldn't get the PhD. <laughs> well, I mean, the question... I mean, it's, it's, we, it feels like it's escalating. <laughs> what comes after global pandemic? Right, because we went from local disaster uh-huh. to national pandemic. Yeah. Or not even national, but Which, I mean, it pandemic. wasn't just Cary. It devastated a lot of Hattiesburg and nearby Petal. Um, right, so that... But global is, is much larger. Uh, we're talking a much larger If scale. you get a PhD, like, will the galaxy be affected? There's like an interplanetary crisis. Will it be yeah. um, the plot to Hercules? Like, Tartarus is unlocked, and then, like, Hades releases the, the Titans? The Disney movie? Yeah. I mean... That's the plot of the Disney movie? Yeah, and do you not remember Hades was waiting for all the planets to align and then Tartarus would be unlocked and then he goes and takes the Titans to Mount Olympus? No. Wow, where were you? Just listening to Alan Menken music? You can get that in uh, Mulan. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I, I haven't seen her. It's been a, a, it's been a few minutes since I've seen Hercules. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're missing out. And if yeah. only, you know, Disney Plus was our sponsor, like, we could do so much more plugging for them. But <laughs> since we talked about the places where you did your degrees, Adam, what did you almost want to do for your thesis? I have two, because I switched my I switched my thesis idea three times. Third time's a charm, though, did finish that one, and I actually liked it, which is a key difference to some of the other ideas that I had. <laughs> Um, I mean, so the for mine, I just stuck with my idea hardcore for possibly longer than I needed to. Yeah. Uh, well, kind of like Livy was saying, my first idea 
was just going to be too much work. Like it was going to be on a scale that I wasn't prepared to do. I mean, it's so like a little bit of preface is that I did not consider myself to be a researcher at all. I had no idea. I like no ideas. I didn't really intend or think about doing any research. My undergrad theory professor is kind of a weird outlier of a theory professor where he mostly just wants to compose music and he got a gig teaching the same university for 30 years where he would teach three classes a semester and then just sit in his office and compose all the time, which is truly a sweet deal. But he doesn't write, he doesn't present, he doesn't edit, like he doesn't do any of the normal theory stuff. He just had a tenured position teaching three classes and then composing things. Um, and for him, that's what he wanted to do. And since that was my only experience like with a theorist, um, that's also what I envisioned for myself. I don't really care about composing, but it was like, yeah, I just want to sit around and teach four or five classes. That sounds great. I didn't know that research was a big component of this. And so I showed up to school and I had no ideas. Um, I remember I interviewed at one school and they're like, well, like, what do you want to do with music theory? And I legitimately didn't understand what the question meant. Like I had to ask them to rephrase it. And they said, like, well, how do you want to change the world with music uh. theory? And now I understand they were asking me, like, what kind of research do you want to do? Like, what area do you want? Like, what do you want to expand or build upon? But since I didn't really think about research at all, I didn't even know what they were asking. I was like, I just want to make Even students- that question now, though, I would just be like, um come again like change the world what <laughs> yeah i still think it's a weird way to frame it because i mean my goal is just to make better musicians out of students like that's really all yeah. i want to do um, and by that you mean choir singers go on <laughs> i mean any singers i want singers to actually be able to read music um <laughs> okay we should stop hating on singers some of them know a fair amount of theory well, and some non-singers are horrible so it's it's all fair it's all a around. mixed bag i mean yeah I, I feel like musicians can pick on musicians. That's fine. Anyway, um, I, I really like rap music. I think that rap music would be cool. Rap music is kind of really, I think, popped off in like the last 10 years, especially in music theory, um, increasingly so as the in like the past three years, I guess. Um, I'm not the best judge of that since I've only been connected to it for a couple years now. So you're saying... Um, but it feels like things... Since our fateful conference together that we didn't know we were at yeah. together, it's become a big uh-huh. thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it seems like it's been popping up for longer in like a musical, musicological, I yes. guess, sense. But music theory specifically feels very recent. Yeah, but I mean, especially, you know, some of the stuff we mentioned in a, a past episode, some of the stuff that's going on in the theory world today, it just talks about how limited the scope of music theory is and how like traditional and kind of backwards it is. And so like discussions of rap music don't until recently and still for the most part don't fit into that and so like trying to find a place for that can be tricky sometimes like conference like old school conferences or depending on who like the, the you know the the panel is like they may not want to accept a rap paper because it is a rap paper but i wanted to talk about rap music and uh, most of the stuff that i see like livy mentioned is like musicology based so it's much more about like the sociology and kind of like the events that lead up to rap and like what impact rap has had on society and then even now a lot of theorists seem to be focusing on the rhythmic aspects of rap which are really interesting it's a really important part of rap but i don't see as many people that i know of talking about the music specifically i mean like the samples like what makes the beat and i'm mostly interested in music that samples rap music that samples other music Um, a lot of people make their beats wholesale and that's cool but i'm mostly interested in 
how people select the samples that they do and then what they do with them because you know they're going to be they're going to be altered they're going to like chop them up slow them down uh, rearrange them a little bit i'm very interested in the choices that get made and then what they do with those tracks after they've chosen them and i think that they're because rap is so self-referential and it is built on its own history and like you can pull out like basically like a family tree of like how rappers are related to one another either as mentors or influences or rivals and so i think that there's the possibility that there's a lot of meaning behind these samples in a way that i haven't really seen anybody talk about yet and then once i started learning about narrative theory realizing that there can be meaning in the music that wasn't even necessarily intended or no realized by the composers putting the, the producers putting the tracks together and so i really want to do that eventually which is why at the beginning i said tm 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 because uh, i'm still going to try to do this at some point but like yeah i want to find a way to talk about the samples of rap music and find like a musical meaning to them or, or underneath them I, I think that that would be really be interesting but the problem is is that rap is a newer thing and narrative is i mean not as new as, as research into rap music but that's also kind of off the beaten track of music theory yeah um, i would i mean i'm definitely with you, you know yeah you know more about the narrative stuff well than me, so i was ahead. gonna say definitely like one aspect that's challenging about this area is you know when are you gonna talk about it that what happened in the 70s as far as hip-hop and rap may have like been going on has drastically changed just from 70s to 90s let alone 90s to 2010s of that there's so many technological advances that you can like do that that's a tough thing to talk about whereas you know like minimalism is a movement you could talk about for days because you at least have 50 years of like music to compare and contrast instead of like okay this five-year span is what i'm working with to talk about something because i mean rap music is a baby genre and as opposed to almost all other genres um and so like the development and the changes have both come at a time where technology increases the speed of change and it's just super recent you know it it does only have 40 years whereas like rock music has you know almost 100 years now yeah and i don't i know there was a paper um given at scsmt um when it was at usm that yes that was a guy who was from indiana i believe yeah i mean it feels like all the guys giving things on rap music right now are at indiana for Mm -hmm. better or for worse but which is why it stung when they rejected me like within (laughs) 10 minutes of me applying it's okay. I'm happy that you're no doing joke. your that thing. Was, it was almost. It was, it was within hours. I swear. But uh, his thing was it was on sampling, but it was it was more musicological, wasn't it? Yeah. So I um man, I should try to because there find were that there were some paper. like semantic qualities to it, but I don't feel like he went fully down the narrative rabbit hole. Yes. That's what I was gonna say. Is that my issue with this paper? That, you know, we're taking anonymous pot shops. That, hot shots at this paper right now i'm trying to find it um uh it was digital sampling signifying and style in the music of dj screw from john madisich madisich something sorry for that uh from indiana university i would just say it felt like he didn't go far enough like he talked about how self-referential rap music is one of the, the key things that his talk was uh, that that phrase signifying is that like when you make a quotation 
this is something that's rooted in like black culture and black art and literature that I'm I'm not fully equipped to talk about accurately. I need to do some more reading and also I'm white. But like when you quote something like that, you're like inherently adding meaning to it. And then like the kind of meaning that you add is like called signifying. Um, that's, that's what that is. And so he talked about how like there's this one rap line that gets quoted a lot. And he talked about like kind of like the timeline of, hey, this guy said it and then this guy said it and then this guy over here said it and this guy knew was friends with this guy. So he said it. But he didn't really get into what it meant he just was like hey look here's this chain of like references right in which to me like sure that does fit the 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 categorical definition of of signifying but we're not actually talking about what any of that means and the fact that rap music just naturally is a self-referential like art form like community i don't know if just quoting somebody else is the meaning i think that's just part of what happens in that in that like ecosystem you know yeah well and i feel like something that and again that was a lyrical thing where i want to look at more of like the musical like the samples and stuff but yes that was i I was really excited for that paper and he got like halfway to where i wanted to go and then just stopped and i was like man i i want to yeah i want to see what does that mean though like i want to take it deeper yeah so the the question that dr beard would ask me to ask myself as i listened to presentations was kind of it, it wasn't so what, but it was that like idea of, okay, what's the point? What are, what's the real point of everything that you just said? And so that sometimes I feel like these presentations fall short of that. Like, it's really cool what you're explaining. It's awesome that there is all of these things that are signifying each other over a period of time, and there's that chain connection. But it, it did fall, or at least feel like it felt short of, okay, but why did you tell me all of that? You know? Yeah. And... Kind of like we've talked about before, it's the idea of if you are the intended listener and you knew all of that chain, then it would be really cool to hear it wherever it is on the chain because you know the history. But if you're just somebody listening to it and you have no idea of this history, you're still being conveying some meaning from this. And so what does that person talk about? And that's something we've talked about on the podcast is being aware of my explaining this from like the composer's point of view even though it would be extremely hard to justify that my explaining it from like a performance standpoint a listener's which listener like there's all these different angles to take and i guess sometimes it doesn't seem like people have clarified how they're explaining that point Mm -hmm. but yeah i i do think that i mean even it feels like in the past um like narratology has been around probably since the 1980s when Ratner came out with his topics in classical music, but there's always been a attempt to connect language and the more um, semantic meaning to mm-hmm. music and how it's used and conveyed. It just feels like in the past, you know, 20 years, maybe last 15 years, that there have been more significant developments of here's how we could use this in the more semantic approach versus a strict syntax. So ultimately the problem with rap music is that especially our our committees at USM do lean a little more old school. Our advisor is very hip hip to it and he's he's kind of ready to go he's kind of ready uh to go anywhere with you uh, as long as you can back it up he he wants to embrace like the new ideas the new research but everybody else in the committee not so much 
and they want to see like some old school, you know, graphical analysis and, and interpretation like that. And so the biggest obstacle, the immediate obstacle for me was I don't have a way to notate rap music. And I kind of explored around and I found some, I found one system in like an article on MTO that I thought was like, hey, that could be useful. But again, like we don't really have a way to, to like notate samples, like because that is going to be linked more to time rather than beats. Yeah. I, it could be either, but I don't know. I, I think just like notating those and then being able to like show that and draw meaningful conclusions from the notation, coming up with what that needed to be was going to be so much of a task that it almost wasn't even worth doing the rest of the analysis. In fact, it wasn't, not for the masters. Well, and So I had to drop that one just based on a, a, a notation issue of like, I don't know if the research is there yet for me to go to a weird place with it. When... I think we, I think it was in the debate episode where we were talking, and this may be the debate that's not currently. I think it is that one that's not currently out yet. So yeah, it, it'll come out. It, well, no, after this, it will have you're come right. out. You're right. Sorry. So it's the one that currently does not is not out yeah. in our timeline. So in the most recent <laughs> debate, we talked about this idea that I brought up the idea of is sampling. Like, it's really just the same as this old school technique of just taking a sound and reshaping it. Like, there might be something there for you if you said, basically, like, if my sample is a whole note, instead of picking one pitch or something, they're going more abstract and saying my whole thing is this. And I want to chop up that note and create these other rhythms and other things based off of that sound. Uh, do you remember, speaking of SCSMT 2017, do you remember the um, the narrative uh, paper that was on Bacchus? Uh, from uh, our We Were Almost Friends conference? Yeah. Yeah. Were you there for that one? Because I'm pretty sure I asked a question. So you at least heard me at some point. Uh, I don't remember you asking a question in that one. I remember the other question. My Bob question. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to Ryan. Uh, yeah, it was it was calc. Uh, I mean, I'll just reference this since we mentioned it. It was calculating a narrative and interdisciplinary analysis of Benjamin Britten's Bacchus from Six Metamorphoses after Ovid, um, from Wesley Bradford, who was at University of La- Louisiana Lafayette. I'm not sure if he's still there or not. I cannot remember. Um, he was either new at the time or he's moved since. I don't remember. Anyway, I, I just, the one thing I remember about the analysis was that he was looking at like, hey, if we break down this little figure like into like a really really tiny figure, and then we see like variations or alterations of that figure, like that's where he was drawing the narrative meaning and differences from. Right. And so I think that you could do the same thing with samples: is that you'd have to like come like find each little fragment and then like name each fragment and then find out where how it's used and how often it's used and like the sequencing of that so like yeah there are some similar there is a way to do it but like to show the music also like most rap music doesn't ever come out on sheet music like i'd have to figure out a way just to get it on paper to to put it into something you know like to put it into a presentation yeah um i don't know on some level i don't think that you would have to do it would still be a lot of legwork to create something, but I don't know that you would have to notate the entire sample. Basically, if you, you know, just made like a sound clip and whether there were words in the sample or it was strictly like this, that if you kind of put that out that right now I'm thinking of whatever producing software, whether it's GarageBand or like 
some free software online that if you had different tracks and you said like, yeah, they're taking like this track and repurposing it or something that you could show it visually on the track and not necessarily have mm-hmm. to rewrite it in modern notation. And and to be fair, I have seen some transcriptions of rap music. Like people do do that. It just it just sounds like a pain, and so I don't feel like it. But eventually I'll have to. So <laughs> just have to get over that. I mean, kind of. I, there's one place that I'm with you of, like, it may not be as helpful as you want which I think is something uh, we were talking at some point about the idea of writing. What if we wrote something modern notation, but in a graphic design way? So what would be what would make the most sense to visually see mm-hmm. it? And so I think that there is like the point that you might be making might be lost in an older notation. It might be easier to make with a more modern, like, hey, here's this set of sound waves. This is what this is, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. So anyway, that was the rap idea. Um, I'm, I'm, I really do feel like I'm going to try to do something with that at some point. Uh, it just wasn't for the master's degree. It just that needed to get done, and it was just looking to be too much work. Uh, so I'll just briefly, the second idea was I was going to analyze some Shostakovich string quartet, uh, number eight, the C minor one using some, I did some project for Dr. Russ class and he's like, this would be a great topic. And I said, sure. It looks easier than rap music. Uh, the problem was that I hated it. Um, I think there is a big part of it that it was mostly like a mental thing for me where I didn't enjoy the prospect of the thesis. Like I was freaking myself out about the thesis itself. And therefore I just started dreading the whole project and the idea and that sort of thing. So eventually I just quit on that one because I hated, I hated what I was doing. And Dr. Russ has said that it would have worked. It was a totally fine idea. It would have been adequate. I would have found what I was looking for and the committee would have passed it. It's just doing all the work on something I did not enjoy was like just killing my brain and my desire to actually work on it. So then I switched to the Stravinsky thing. And even though I had to start all over and it was really hard, um, I liked it way more because I liked that music more. So every all in all, it worked out. But those are my those are my two ideas. Yeah. The rap music one well, and then you, the Shostakovich thing. So. And you had a starting point for the Stravinsky one because that came from our seminar class. That right? was Yeah, that was also a project that I did. That was on. I was also on. A, I analyzed a piece for our class, but not through the way that I did um, my thesis. I just analyzed it for the class and wrote about it. Yeah, because... Like the form and the structure and stuff. And then Dr. Russ said, hey, check out this new uh, Hatton book and see like maybe any of the new stuff he talked about in here would be useful to you. And I was like, yeah, I guess I could try that. Yeah, because in that seminar, that was the Shanker seminar, but it was also... Uh, Shanker, Shanker was the one where I did the Shostakovich project. I don't think you took the other class with us, because that was the chamber American chamber music from 1945 to like 2000. Oh, no, then I wasn't in there. But that one does sound super cool. Yeah, that was the other cool. seminar that we took. Yeah, that was a fun class. My first seminar was um, 19th century French music. Or was it specifically yeah. Paris? It may have been, like, specifically Paris. Dr. Russ just said he was so overworked that semester that he had to pick something he knew really well that he could just teach without thinking about it. Wait, your semester or mine? Ours. Yeah, it would have been yours. That's why he went with American Chamber Music in 1945. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, that is everything that you've written on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sometimes you got to do what you got to do. I mean, and I came out with a thesis, and it was a it was a fun class. So yeah, it was good. He made us do a lot of writing for that class. I wish we'd gotten into like some more music, but it was it was good all in oh all. Oh my gosh, do not get me started on the writing yeah, portion of that class. But that's just his thing now. He made them do that for the Shanker seminar after we Which left. Which is crazy that you would try to turn Shanker class into a, a writing seminar. 
Yikes. Like, my first seminar was, there were heavy writing components as well, which, Mm -hmm. so, I don't necessarily know that we've touched on it. Maybe we have, maybe we haven't, but I'll just say it again. One of the tough things about writing your thesis, at least for me, was coming from this music ed background where I didn't necessarily have to write academic papers in undergrad and going to this very academic style of writing and not knowing necessarily all of the conventions and so that like just style was one battle that I was having in the thesis process and that was probably like half a year just making sure that the style was right. I don't know if you guys ran into the same thing. I think generally everything that I've read from Livy fit the mold better but mine is just not I don't want to write like that. Yeah, I'm good at sounding <laughs> academic. It's like the thing I'm best at. I'm not an idea person. Yeah. But if you gave me an idea, I could write it. Mm-hmm. So my problem was coming up with ideas. Same. Yeah, I'm with you there. Which is yeah, what I took a really me strong, a semester. Like, writing background through all my experience in school. I was homeschooled, and so my parents always did like a lot of writing stuff with me and made sure everything sounded academic and all proper like that. And then I did a lot of writing in undergrad as well. So, no, the, the writing itself was not, I mean, it's not fun. Boring as heck. I didn't like it, but that was not the part that I struggled with. One of the things that eludes me as a writer is the idea of... Okay, (laughs) you need this topic sentence. And then you're going to say everything in like a very specific sequential order. And then you should wrap up with like a conclusion or transition sentence. And then, you know, next paragraph start with like another topic. I think it's just because I don't even think that way. It's a, I have a very abstract thought process. And so it's like, yeah, I'll just say all of these things. And I'm going to talk about this. And then I'll move on to the next thing and talk about that. And so on some level, it is amazing that Dr. Rust helped me get through this process because sometimes like my first initial here's what I wrote and thought and like when I read it back to myself it makes sense it's like yeah this is great but as far as like the academic style it was like okay this is not close two years into it I got a lot better about this writing thing but because I don't write like that either and that's what drove me crazy in our seminar class where we were doing this writing curriculum because it it would be about very structured writing like that I'm like that's not how I write and Dr. Rust you've always been very positive about my writing so why am I doing this (laughs) like I was like this is not helping me this is a challenge that I don't need like it drove me up the wall because I was like I don't know how to do uh atonal analysis help me with that like teach me theory it drove me nuts i uh but other than that that class was great that part of it though drove me crazy yeah and then the other thing which i don't know if you guys feel the same but one of the great things for me to come out of our music research class was really getting to the basis of looking at a wide range of like documents and knowledge and being able to pinpoint like okay this is a topic actually worth talking about or not because like when it's the first year of your master's and you know like okay I'm trying to stay on a two-year timeline basically at the end of year one I need to like be starting the thesis writing process but then not really having a fully formed idea or knowing if it's even a valid idea Meaning, not valid as in you're right or wrong, but that there might be enough research to be able to write about it quickly. 
that that helped me a lot. I just got that help like a year later than I needed it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's advised to take that bibliography class in your first year so that when you finish that bibliography, you can use it for your big writing project, whether it's a thesis or a dissertation. Right. Which was true and would have been helpful, except that I did it all with the impression that I was going to do a rap music like thesis. And so all of my bibliography and all the work I put into that class was then only good for that class. And then I didn't have any any foundation to work from or to read up over the summer for the actual thesis. Right. And so the kind of what Adam ran... And then I switched the idea two more times after that. So like... (laughs) Right. Which, like, that's part of the problem just for those that are possibly interested in a master's degree or other things like that is that trying to find the right balance of I could do... I could write about this and defend and everything else within a year and I actually like this and I'm interested in it like find, finding the middle ground is fairly difficult or you're me yeah. and you're just can I do it because that's all I needed <laughs> I was like I just need one topic that I can actually write a thesis on that's all I wanted and when I found it I was like I'm gonna make this work yeah <laughs> no that was I mean if I could you know turn back time like Cindy Lopper, that would be what I would want to do is just, okay, what's what's the thing that I can go write about? I already know the methodology and everything that I would need to say that I did and just be able to write it and move on. I was very proud of what I ended up with, but... <laughs> oh, yeah. Also, isn't Cher the one that turned back time? Did they both do that? Pretty sure it was Cher. I know that Cher definitely did. No, time after time is Cindy Lauper, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, yes, shares the one that turned back time. Well, um, shame on me. Yeah, that that's what I struggled <laughs> with is like I said before, my my Shostakovich idea was a totally fine idea and I could turn that into something now. Like if I put the work into it, I would then Yeah, I, would I remember I was it. pressuring you to keeping to like keep going with it cuz I was like this is a good topic, you can write this, keep going cuz yeah. I wanted you to stay on track, but you were not into I it. I can't do that no. balance where if I'm not passionate about it, like if I don't care, I can't do it. Yeah, there's a clear difference when you started this Stravinsky thing. I was I was happy that you did and take my advice i just was like <laughs> i was like adam i don't want you to spiral i want you to have a thesis that's like, like that's when I all i wanted making progress on it dr russ was like man this i think this is just what we needed like we have an idea that works and you believe in it and he's like i think yeah. that's just what we've been missing this whole time is that the other idea was fine but you didn't believe in it i was like that's exactly what it was like i hadn't put it in those words mm-hmm. but yeah that's what it was which i should work on and get better at like that's <laughs> Well, I, I mean, just, to be I fair, I should just take like, the good ideas when they come. Like, the adequate ideas are yeah. probably the, some of the best ones. I mean, I joked that I just needed one idea, but to be fair, it is an it is the only thing that I was even remotely interested in, so I haven't had the experience of, like, having a good idea that I didn't care about. It would probably be more challenging than I imagine it to be, because, like, I was genuinely interested in Adams. I was lucky that it's the one writable idea I had. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, it would have been different if I had shown up from undergrad with ideas like i said i didn't know that i would need to have ideas and so i I don't know my my theory professor in undergrad he did his dissertation on stravinsky and Mm. since i liked him so much and he always talked about how stravinsky was the man i always like kind of wanted to work with stravinsky and i liked serial and atonal music so yeah see i just showed up knowing i liked adams yeah that was it there are probably pretty good odds that i ended up on stravinsky somewhere along the way but that's just yeah. how it turned out. See, I showed up and got enamored with isotopies, and I was like, huh, uh, these are cool. <laughs> I could I could get behind these. And like, and then your committee made you not write about them. 
<laughs> yeah, it, I mean, they, I think, because that was, that was the prospectus defense. And so they were, like, okay with it. But it, basically we did get to a point of this will get by a lot better without using that term because it's not really different than a term that we already had. And I think it goes back to... I'm an abstract thinker, and so that for me, that idea made a ton of sense. And I think on some level, like, it still works, just, like, it needs refinement. And the problem is kind of what I've said before, not necessarily on the podcast, but the narrative theory in general, one of the problems that I think we're having is we keep introducing all of this terminology, but we're not actually defining the old terminology. Then you end up in odd places because you want to say things, but you may only have like one source in the 40 years that it's been around that solidifies your stance on that. To me, like it made sense, but where I ended up was much more logical and easy to defend. I'm happy with the changes that I made. I thought I was going to say something, but I forgot what. Um, that the Isotopies episode is still insane and nobody should listen to it. I might just, I, maybe I should just republish that one this week. Maybe that's what we <laughs> In case you forgot, here was Seth's original stance on narrative. <laughs> I for, yeah, I guess I forgot that not only not only is it not a very good episode, you also disavowed all of your ideas that you referenced in it. You know, I really don't... I don't think I'm disavowing them. I'm just taking like a different look at things. Like, I explained it in a different way. <laughs> it is one of those, like, yeah, 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 just, just kind of ignore that. There's a simpler way to think about this. Oh, but speaking of isotopies and narrative, going way back to... Uh, the Bacchus presentation. I think that was one of the questions. Yeah. I don't know if I asked it just like from the floor or if I went up and asked him afterwards. It may have been afterwards, but I did ask kind of like, why isn't there a harder stance that you're taking, whether it was like an ironic or a comedy narrative, because that was my issue with that presentation, as well as most presentations that I hear on narrative theory is that they end with like, well, it could be whatever you want it to be. And it's like, <laughs> what? <laughs> what was the point of telling me all of that? If we ended with, it can be anything I want it to be because different people hear it different way. Like, and not that we have to have ultimatums, but if you're not actually going to take a stance, then you can't actually debate and discuss things. Not that like I'm trying to put somebody on blast for like, you thought that was a tragedy? It's clearly this. The idea that one person may think it's one way and somebody might think it's a different way and having a healthy conversation about the differences or why you might think that, like, that's a very interesting topic to me that we're basically avoiding. Yeah, I didn't know enough about it then at that presentation, so I have no idea. I was still enamored with I remember, isotopies, so, I mean, we both knew nothing. I, um, I just remember thinking, wow, this is incredibly granular. I cannot believe anyone cares about this. <laughs> Like, this is the boringest thing I've ever heard. Why would you ever talk about music with this kind of detail? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you. All right. 
So, um, wrapping up, thank you guys so much for listening today. If you guys have any ideas along those lines or any questions, feel free to shoot us an email um, or send us something through Facebook or like Podbean, wherever you find us. Um, I think that's it. You guys got anything else? Nope. No. Thanks for listening, everybody. Yep. See you guys next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.